You're listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, episode 74. You're talking about putting your fuck parts in my head where my brain lives. You know, in nature, only a handful of creatures made for life. But isn't that like cheating? We can't do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Why not? The safety word is banana. It is so refreshing to be with someone who likes to fuck outside the box. This is the Touch of Flavor podcast. Dating and relationship advice by kinksters for kinksters. Join us as we tackle BDSM, sex, non-monogamy, and how to build extraordinary relationships in an ordinary world. And now your hosts, Cassie and Rigel. All right, guys. So we're going to hop in with another Q&A. Last episode, we had answered the camp-specific Q&A questions. One thing, guys, before we get started that I want to put out. So, A, we have a Facebook group for polyamorous folks who are looking to turn their relationships around and build something great. We have a lot of people, and they're talking about things that are going on in their life, right? So two things that I, I want with that. Number one, if you're not a member of the Facebook group, you should join the Facebook group. It's an amazing resource for people. And you can find that, you know, I'll put a link in the show notes, obviously, at a touchofflavor.com forward slash 074. And you can also, if you're on Facebook, you can put in relationships outside the box and you'll find it. Yep. So you can do that. But the other thing I just wanted to mention, guys, and it's it's not, I don't think we have a question around this, but we have been getting a ton of questions lately in the Facebook group, which is why it came to my mind, uh, from people who are in polymono situations, which is what we call it, right? That's relationships where one person's polyamorous and the other's monogamous and they're trying to make that work because like they love each other and they want to stay together, but that's really tricky to navigate. So guys, if you did not hear it, we did a podcast episode a while back. Uh, I'm going to have to actually look up which one it is where we talk about this in some pretty good detail and you should definitely listen to that episode if you find yourself in that same place, particularly since there aren't a lot of people who are talking about this, I don't think. Yeah. And a lot of the information that you get is it just doesn't work or you're eventually going to break up or one of you is going to have to be changing who you are. Either the monogamous person is going to have to then become poly or the poly person is just going to have to settle to be monogamous. And that's not the case, guys. Actually, one fourth of the people that I work with, my clients, are polymono couples. It's not something that is as uncommon as folks think. It isn't an easy relationship to navigate, but it is something that can be done and in a way where everybody's needs and wants and desires are being met to the, the most they can be. I mean, if obviously there's there's struggles and difficulties there, but it is a doable relationship. And even though there's lots of information that says otherwise. So guys, episode 42, I'm Polly, they're monogamous. What the fuck do I do? Highly recommend that you listen to that. I think that you will find that that's super helpful for you. Um, so yeah, I will link to that in the show notes, but also just, you know, pull it up, listen to it. It's episode 42. I think that's a great resource. So with that, I don't think we really have anything else today, right? We covered Mm -hmm. a lot of non-question and answer on the last episode. So why don't we hop in? Our first question is from Morgan25. 
I'm newly sexually active with my first partner. I was a virgin until I met him. While I've been interested in the kink scene for a while, he has not. I am namely interested in bondage and power exchange. I'd be willing to try other things, but I don't want to freak him out. So that's one problem. The other problem is that he has all these questions and is willing to try these things, but I can't find the right words to explain it to him. He'd much rather hear it from me than try to research it himself. So basically, how do I explain my desires to my boyfriend who doesn't know the first thing about kink? So I think the first thing is a lot of times we get into this position where we know we want to do all the kinky things. And depending on your partner, it can be helpful to bring all the ideas and be like, here, here's a a bunch of different things. These all look awesome. What do you think? But in this case, it might be helpful to find one or two specific things that you'd like to try and talk to your partner about it. You don't necessarily have to have the best terminology or the all the lingo down. But for instance, if you're interested in some sort of bondage, you could say, hey, you know, I'm interested in being tied up. You know, what do you think about, you know, tying my hands up in a rope while we have sex? And maybe it's not necessarily where you want to get to eventually, but it's a segue into that interaction. Because if it's like, oh yeah, you know, tying you up, that sounds fun. Well, then next time, maybe you guys can explore something else. And that could eventually lead to actually doing things like detailed rope work versus, you know, just getting your hands tied, but trying maybe some smaller things and easily understood things, right? Like if you bring to your partner, I want to do electrical play with violet wands and extensions, that's, that's a lot. But you say, you know, I'm interested in maybe you tying me up with some rope and spanking me. That's going to be pretty easy to explain and have a conversation around. Yeah, I think there's I think there's a couple things that tie in with what you're saying. You know, the first is you always want to work in slow when you're talking about this kind of stuff, both for yourself, right? A lot of times when we're brand new, we have the tendency to jump in with both feet. And it, it's good to kind of work in and, and learn your limits and learn what you like and you don't like. But also, right, like when you're talking about somebody else and trying to get them, uh, you know, they're new and trying to get them in, you definitely want to start slow. So I think that's one thing that you're saying that's important. The other thing, though, that I, I think you're brushing on without actually saying it. You know, you're like, how do I explain this to him? And I think that in some ways, that's not really the right way to look at it, right? Like being like, I mean, I'm not sure that sitting down and explaining like, hey, you know, I like, well, A, you're brand new, so you don't know what you like, right? But B, like, you know, even if I was to go to a partner and like I had a new partner that I was trying to get into stuff, I don't think I'd sit down and be like, you know, I really like, I'm, I'm going to use a topping one for me because it's easy, right? I really like consensual non-consent because, you know, I really like, I like physical stuff in general. Like, you know, I like wrestling and that kind of stuff even outside of the scene. So I get to bring that into my scenes and I get to use things that I'm good at to do it. And, you know, there's something really cool about having that kind of control over a person and letting them actually struggle, but not actually be able to really do anything about it. Cause that's not a place a lot of people get, like, usually they're like play struggling and stuff like that. And, you know, and it's pretty sexy and it leads into rough sex really well. Like, I don't think I would try and explain that to them, A, because I I don't think there's a way in which that doesn't sound weird. But B, I'm not sure that like trying to explain why you like certain things, even if you were to really know what you liked, is the best way to get your partner to actually try something. 
And I think it can come across a little intimidating because you mentioned power exchange. And when we get into power exchange, we're talking about someone taking control of not necessarily just bedroom stuff a lot of times. And that can sound really, really intimidating. Whereas having a conversation like, why don't this time while we're fucking around, you tell me what to do, right? Like that's fun and interesting versus for me, mentally, it really does this wonderful thing where it calms me when you take control. And I would really like you to come up with protocols for us to do. Like that can be overwhelming in a lot, right? Mm -hmm. So coming at it more from like a, hey, how about this idea? It looks fun. Why don't we try it out? probably would go a lot further. And there are reasons that they like it aren't going to be yours, right? So I'd really focus more on instead of trying to explain why you're interested in this stuff, just focus on asking them to try stuff with you. And like Cassie said, do it in a way where you're working into it slowly and it sounds like fun for them, right? Instead of like jumping in way, way too fast. I think the other thing with this to realize too is like some people just... We say everybody's kinky, and that's true to a certain extent, depending on how you define kink. I think everybody has a little... Spunk. Non-vanilla to them. But, you know, it could very well turn out, and certainly you want to, you know, have conversations and things like that first. But, you know, it could just very well turn out that your boyfriend isn't into some of the stuff that you want to explore, right? And then you've got to think about... You know, if stuff goes that right, you got to think about that as well and what can be done with that. So I don't think necessarily that your boyfriend has to research it himself. Something I have found is people who are less interested or haven't explored. It seems like homework, right? Like I've got to read up on these things that I may or may not be interested in. So he doesn't necessarily have to to do the homework. I think adding things in slowly, bringing up suggestions is a good way to get him started. Now, if there's things that he finds he enjoys, like, oh, I really did enjoy spanking you. Well, then he can start doing some research into impact or things like that. Or I like tying you up. Now he can start looking into rope stuff. But that segue into doing anything is something that you can just bring up as more of a playful, fun thing to try. And most, even the most vanilla people have tempered with, you know, have, have tinkered with something. Um, whether it's rough sex and kind of like being bratty and, and pushing each other around during sex or eating strawberries off somebody or using ice cubes, things like that. You can start to integrate things very slowly and see what actually works for him. All right. Our next question is from Mike, 39 from Maryland. I'm in a polyquad. We share a house, have kids, dogs, and the whole package. Everything is great, but I'm no longer romantically interested in one of my partners. I still love her, but I don't feel connected to her in a romantic or sexual way. It's made group sex bad, and I feel fake going along without telling her. I don't want to break up our families, and I still want to be close, just not in the boyfriend way. Do you have any tips for how to have an empathetic and honest conversation with someone you used to be in love and lust with, but now just want to be nesting buddies with? It's interesting. This, too, is something that's come up in the Facebook group this week. Didn't we just have somebody who was talking about, like, we were in a triad. Now we figured out we're in a V. Yeah. Like just in the last couple of days. You want to start with this? Yeah. So here's the thing. Everybody in a group dynamic grows relationships differently. Yeah. Let me actually, I'll, I'll hop in here for a second too. Because I think that a lot of people don't get this. And this is something that we've talked about quite a bit 
like, you know, we do a lot of group poly stuff. You know, we have outside partners and stuff as well, but our main primary group right now is three people, right? We have three nesting partners and then, you know, we have other people we've dated together and that kind of stuff. And one of the things I think that gets people the most who are newer to polyamory or newer to group polyamory is they have this idea that attraction and the relationship should develop equally between people. And that's not the case. I think that surprises a lot of people. Like that's one of those hard lessons that if you can get from us or somebody else who has done this instead of figuring that out for yourself is really good. And it tends to be a huge mistake that folks who are just starting out with poly, like the unicorn hunters looking for the unicorn because they're like, oh, this person is going to like us exactly the same way, is going to date us the same exact way, and we're all going to love and care each other about each other exactly the same. And that's not how it happens. So you're actually almost setting yourself up for more failure that way. It's this idea that everything is going to be completely identical in relationship with everybody. And that's not what happens. And, you know, the second part of this, which you're running into is relationships do change, right? Like when we talk to our clients, you know, one of the things I like to say, you know, because like, I don't understand how my partner this and how my partner that. And, you know, when we got together X, Y, and Z, and now, you know, A, B, and C. And it's like, you if you sit back and I don't know how long you guys have been together, but, you know, you have house, kids, dogs, and the whole package. So I'm assuming a, a while, you know, you sit back and look at your, just look at yourself five years or 10 years ago and see how different a person you were then from who you are now. For most of us, that's a pretty significant jump. And so to think that our partners aren't going to change over the same period of time is a little naive of us, I think. So I think those are kind of the two starting places is, you know, relationships don't grow equally in group situations and people change and relationships change as time goes on. And I think from there, you know, you're, you're asking for a way to do this that's honest and empathetic. And the answer is, well, then do it that way. You know, tell this person you still care about them. You still have feelings for them as a family member, but that romantically and specifically sexually, because it's making group sex awkward, that isn't something that you're interested in anymore. And that's going to that's gonna hurt. That's not going to be fun. But you can do that in a way that shows that you still care and that this person is still valuable to you. And that's what you're going to want to stress is like, you know, I do care about the relationship that we do have, the interactions that we do have, but these are the interactions that aren't working for me anymore. Yeah. I don't honestly think there's a lot more to it than that, that you can do, right? I had my last job, I had to make a lot of death notifications and like tell people like, Hey, like your loved one passed away. And like, you realize pretty quickly that there isn't a particularly great way to do that. The important thing is just to get it done. And I think in your situation, there isn't necessarily a great way to do it. I think the important thing is for you to do it, right? Because the longer you let that go and the longer, you know, especially since it's bleeding into other areas, I think the worst it's going to make that conversation when it does happen. Any other tips for the specific conversation? No, I was actually just going to add on that, you know, Mike had mentioned that it has made group sex feel bad, you know, like the, the interactions, they're bad and, and feel fake. Like that's the kind of stuff that can build up and become resentment and not necessarily just you. Because if you're feeling 
strange and things are feeling fake, most likely the other people in those interactions are starting to feel weird feelings as well. So this wouldn't be something I would wait on doing if this is where you're at. On a side note, before we get to our next question, I just learned that there is a company named Tanis Technologies that just launched that I feel really did not do their research before picking that name. What are they? I don't know. Let me just Google Tanis again like I just did. And, and the funny thing is when you Google them, Tantis, the dildo company, is the first hit. And then Tantis Technologies is the second. They partner with government leaders to improve the lives of the citizens they serve. So what you're saying is virtually they're the same thing. They're a bunch of tools to fuck people with. Boom. Okay. Anyway, uh, moving wow. on to the next question. Damn. I don't, man. You don't even know this company like that. <laughs> next question. I just, I'm trying to see when they founded, like if they really just did not Google before they picked the name. It says they were formed in 2002. Maybe they just got their website up. I don't know, man. Okay, go ahead. Anyway, Tina, 41, Texas. My husband and I are monogamous, but both bottoms. We are looking for a pro dom for an evening to play with us. What is the best way to go about finding someone to do that? And where should we set up the play date? We want to be as safe as possible. You know more about this than me because you have pro-dom friends. I do have pro-dom friends. Um, I mean, I have pro-dom friends too, but I think you talk to them more about pro-dom-y Their work. Yeah. Yeah. The first thing is you can find pro-doms usually through others who are in the community. So if you are part of your local BDSM community, somebody can probably refer you. You want to look for people who other people recommend. Obviously, that you're talking about being safe. And, you know, where do you set up that play date? Well, most pro-doms are not necessarily going to want to meet you at your house. And that's not safe for you either. That's probably going to be something like, you know, a more maybe public dungeon or at a hotel room, things like that, where you aren't necessarily at either one of your places. It's an interesting question because it's it's in a lot of areas. I find that the people who do professional work aren't as involved in the community as you would expect. You can still get referrals to them from people in the community though. Like people in the community know who they are, but they don't like come out to munches and hang out as much for the most part. I mean, obviously different people, different things. Yeah. I think it becomes one of those things where like it becomes a job. So it's not necessarily something they do as much in their off time. So get a referral if you can. Obviously you want to be intelligent as far as what you're asking for. There's definitely laws. I don't know what Texas's laws are, but my assumption would be probably not too lenient on certain things. Yeah, well, that's most pro-doms are going to be either. So Yeah, and, and that's why I said you want to be aware of what you're asking for. And also most pro-doms, they do not exchange money for sex. Like it's BDSM play only. So if you're looking for that, 
you might be barking up the wrong tree. Yeah, as far as as far as where to set it up, you probably have a couple options. You know, a lot of times people come meet you at a hotel. They might have their own space, depending on how much they do that work and how successful they are at it. I, I know a lot of programs who have like spaces in their houses or live at their spaces. Or some some people will meet at a local dungeon. If you're if you're worried about the safety end of things, a local dungeon is definitely the safest space. Most places are going to require that, like, if you do that, you've already had any transactions that you're going to have before you get there. Yeah, I was just getting ready to say that. Yeah. Check and make sure that you know what the policies of all that is. Also, some prodoms do have play spaces. There are places that there are a play space where a prodom rents out a specific room as well. So check around, see if you're doing something that is not in a public space where you're going to have other knowing BDSM people around. It is good to set up a like a safe check with somebody if you have a friend, that sort of thing. Not saying that I think that anything would happen necessarily, especially since there's two of you, but it's it's a good idea if you can set that up with a, a friend like, hey, we're going out with somebody if you don't hear back from me in a day, like check in on me. And make sure that you know how to negotiate. We talked about our negotiation video, how to negotiate a BDSM scene video last episode, but we'll link to that in the show notes here as well. A touch of flavor.com forward slash zero seven four. Tim, 32 from Pennsylvania. I am a gay man and have not been able to find a long-term partner because whenever sex comes up, I say I do not like receiving anal The guys I date say that I'm not really gay. How do you explain that you are really interested in men and want long-term relationships, but that anal isn't something you enjoy receiving without running off all the boys? Why is it they think that I'm just curious or closeted? Okay, let's take a step back. Is this a question we can answer? I think so. Okay, I mean, I, I... I really have no input on what gay men think about not receiving anal. I can give some input. Okay, then go ahead. So I think a lot of this comes from when you see the closeted men, the men who are married, who go out and they say, oh, you know, I can hook up with a guy, but I won't give him a blowjob. Because then I'd be gay. Because then I'd be gay. Or... I can do X, Y, and Z, but I can't do anal because then I would be gay. So I think a lot of this comes from that background of possibly the people that you're meeting thinking that you are one of those people. This is like the same thing, I guess, as like the women who are like, you can eat me out and I'm not a lesbian, but if I eat you out, then I'm a lesbian, so I can't do it. Yes. And, and, and I know you had some experience with that before. Yes, I have. Um, <laughs> I had I had a girl that I, I would hook up with and... It was perfectly fine for, for me to go down, but uh, even talk of her going down was like, I'm, I'm not gay. I'm, I'm not a lesbian. What are you talking about? So I, th- I think that a lot of this caution and this feeling of like, you know, people running off is because they might be mistaken that this is what you're actually doing versus actually looking for a relationship. And I think when it comes to anything, when it comes to kink, when it comes to power exchange, when it comes to polyamory, it's not so much what you're trying to portray as much as how you're you're putting it out there. You may want to start the conversation not with, I don't like anal, right? 
it, you might want to start the conversation more about what it is you are looking for. Since you said you're looking for a long-term relationship, like what that looks like. How do you want to spend your time with your boyfriend? How do you see that playing out your interactions with your friends, your family, things like that? Would bringing up past relationships be helpful? Yeah. Bringing up, you know, past relationships, not in a negative way, because that's going to chase the boys off too, but bringing up the experiences that you've had. And also this comes down to like social circles. Like if you're, where are you meeting these people? Are you meeting them at gay bars where you have other gay friends who know you, or are you meeting them more in the other gay life. bars where you don't have friends. <laughs> well, no, I was going to say not at bars, like, or not at gay bars at all, but maybe like out and about and just, you know, now or online. And these people don't have any context for who you are. You're just some guy who messaged them and anal came up and you're saying you don't do that. So I think maybe focusing more on what you're looking for relationship wise is going to be key before the anal situation comes up. And on that note, anal situation is now a phrase that we have to work into other things. I don't know if we have any other questions where we can use that, but okay. Our next question is from Matthew. We're married and want to open again, but we found out that we have genital warts and herpes. We found conflicting information, places from Adam Ruins Everything to WebMD and Medical Journal Info. You know, some places that say it's okay and not a big deal and we need to use protection. I want to know if we can still play or not. So a few things here, I think. Number one, if you guys haven't seen the Adam Ruins Everything episode on herpes, it's actually pretty good. I'll link to it in the show notes. I know Man Cup has watched it. Yeah. And had a conversation with me about herpes. But I think there's a couple things here. So I think the first thing to realize is that both of these things are pretty common You know, I know the statistics are like most people will get HPV at some point in their life if they haven't been vaccinated. Herpes genitally, which you're probably talking about HSV2, although HSV1 can be genital depending on different things. It's just not as common. HSV1 is incredibly prevalent and HSV2 is still not uncommon either. So I think the first thing to realize is that these aren't uncommon and that there are a lot of other people and non-monogamous people included who are in the same boat as you. Yeah. And you mentioned like, can we play? And play covers a lot of things. There's definitely a lot of stuff that you can do that doesn't even have any kind of sexual risk, you know? So being in the BDSM scene, there's lots of things you can do that has zero risk. And these things don't even need to really even be discussed. I don't know if you could say anything has zero risk. but Almost zero Essentially, risk. yeah. Very, very low like, risk. Like, if you're doing electrical play with somebody, it is very, 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 very... Like, if you're doing breast electrical play, there is no way you're going to end up exchanging genital herpes. Like... Unless you've done something really, really bad and fate is against you. But <laughs> there's a lot of seriously low, low, low risk activities. But I think this is more directed around having sex. And with that, recognizing that there are people who are in the same boat as you. So there's going to be a pool of people who already have herpes. But even those who don't, there are lots of people, non-monogamous people out there, who are willing to have sex with, be with people who have herpes and they don't. They may 
want barriers or they may want other precautions. But the big thing is, I think, is having that honest conversation and paying attention to your body. Yeah, I think the thing to understand is there is some risk, right? Like, you know, I'm a little more knowledgeable, honestly, about HSV than I am about genital warts, HPV. But, you know, there there is, right, there is some risk there. Um, and, you know, there's there's things you can do to reduce the risk, certainly, like, you know, not doing stuff when you have an active infection. Using barriers certainly is helpful. You can taking like certain medications like Valtrax and things like that can help reduce both outbreaks and any kind of like viral shedding. Um, so there's certain things, certainly things that you can do to reduce the risk of transmitting stuff. And with that being said, there is always a little bit of at least a little bit of risk. I think the most important part of this is just a to understand what those risks are and what you can do to mitigate them. And then B, to make sure that you're communicating these things to any potential partners or, you know, people that you're looking to sleep with, right? So, you know, yes, I have these things. Here's kind of in my history with it. Here's what I'm doing right now to, you know, reduce risk. And, you know, you need to communicate those things effectively and let them make their own decisions about what risks are acceptable to them. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, I think whenever people get to a point of recognizing that they have something like herpes. This can be really scary. It can feel like, oh my gosh, no one is ever going to want to play with me again. And that simply isn't true. There's there's plenty of people who either are in the same boat or aren't, but are willing to take a certain level of risk. We actually did a podcast episode and I encourage you to listen to it. It's with... Um, Janelle Pierce from the STD Project. It's Breaking the Stigma. It's episode 43. Yeah. And, you know, she talks about, you know, her own personal struggle and, you know, with finding out that she had herpes and kind of continuing her relationships and everything, but it gives you a really good breakdown. And I think it'll be really, really helpful for just you and your partner's mindset around this whole situation. Okay. Our next question is from Whitney 27. Hi, Cassie and Rigel. I have recently gotten divorced from my partner of 11 years and high school sweetheart. He couldn't come to terms with me being kinky and poly. Calling it quits was the hardest but best decision I've ever had to make. The problem is that I'm now a 27-year-old cis female submissive doing solo poly and wanting a family. Most of the poly friends I have made along the way are couples opening up their marriage, for example, and either looking for a third or dating separately. Very few are looking for a primary to have a family with and hopefully babies with. How do I find singlish poly people, people who don't have primaries? And how do I find people that don't just treat me like an option, but a necessity? Is there a right way to go about it? It feels like I'm trying to find my own type of unicorn. Tell Amanda I said hi, please. <laughs> and we did edit this down a little bit, but there was other stuff in here about like, she's running into a lot of couples looking for unicorns, running into a lot of single men who just want to fuck kind of stuff. So how does a solo poly person find partners who are okay with poly, but also want families? Well, I think there's a few things. So I actually want to back up and say that people treating you like an option, not like an option, but as a necessity, regardless of whether someone is looking for a primary or a secondary, no one should be treating you like you're like, and I, I feel like this option versus necessity thing is kind of a weird thing. People should be treating you like you're important and like you're a person regardless. 
I'm not sure about, you know, necessity. I don't think anybody is a necessity. I think we can all survive without someone in their lives. We just choose not to want to. And I think that's really what we should all be aiming for is to be with folks who value us as individuals and want to spend our time with with you and care about you and are going to treat you important. And regardless of you being a primary partner or not, you should be treated that way. So I just wanted to start there. With finding folks like that, there's, you know, that comes down to partner selection and really looking for people who know how to treat their partners right. From there, finding specifically people who are looking for primaries. Well, that's a little difficult. You kind of are in that age range where you're old enough to for people to have established families, but they haven't gotten divorced yet. Um, and I know that's like a funny thing to say, but like, honestly, you know, I, I talk to, monog- you know, non-monogamous folks constantly and there is a large amount of like 40 somethings that are looking for more of a primary partner. And so you kind of fall into a, a difficult age range with that. That being said, there are definitely people out there who are looking for more of a primary, you know, a, a relationship that they could settle down and have children with. It's not like you're you're 60 years old, you're 27. That isn't past child raging, rearing age or having kids. Actually, I think most millennials now are waiting until they're like 30s Early to have. 30s. Yeah. So yeah, this is an interesting question. So, like, I guess you're mainly, you're looking, you want somebody who knows their poly, probably, because you probably don't want the pain and energy of helping somebody break into that world. So, you're looking for somebody who knows their poly, and probably, so I'm thinking you're probably looking for somebody who knows their poly, but is in a position where, like, maybe they have some secondaries and stuff right now, but they don't have anybody you know, like they aren't, they're open to a primary, but they aren't like clicking with any of the people that they're with enough to where they would consider them primary. So how do you find those people specifically? So I'm I'm thinking that these people, if they don't have a primary, but they're interested in a primary are probably going to be actively looking as well. I spend the majority of my time working with couples, but I do work with dating folks. And I'm thinking about a couple of my clients who are non-monogamous, who the reason why they hired me is they're looking for a primary. It's not even necessarily that they can't date people or they don't have people they're dating. I actually had one client in particular who he had a couple of secondary or very, very casual relationships. And the one thing he wanted to look for was a primary. So that client you know, was on dating sites, was looking and had things on his profiles that was like, I'm polyamorous. I have some casual partners. I'm looking for a relationship. I'm kind of looking at his behaviors and, and what he was trying to do prior to working with me, which was he was going out to munches. He was, he was trying to go out into his community. So you might want to look in your community and see who is single and, or not necessarily single, but people who are talking about wanting to find partners who, you know, are never the groomsmen, but always the, uh, the secondary kind of person and see if you can set up a date, get to know that kind of person. But I think these people are going to probably be people who are in the poly community already have some partners, but haven't found 
a primary partner and that's still something that they're craving. And there are a lot of people like that. I know, you know, just off the top of my head, I can think of two of my clients who fell into that situation where it wasn't that they had no partners. It was that they couldn't find someone who matched up with them as far as their primary needs. So any, any advice for finding, like seeking that specifically, or is it just, you kind of have to get out and put out there. That's what you're looking for. I think this is a case where getting out is probably going to be better. Obviously, you can look online, pay attention to people's profiles if they list that they're polyamorous, see what they actually have as far as their relationships. I don't know if Whitney online dating is your thing, but if you see that someone's polyamorous, read into their profile. Most of the time, if people are married or things like that, they'll have it listed. If they're just looking for a sexual relationship and not a romantic one, they usually have that listed too. And if they don't, by message one or two, you can figure it out. But, you know, paying attention to profiles, I think really it comes down to getting out, meeting people. There are a lot of people who are in your age range, maybe a little bit older, who do fall into that category. And I think it's mostly networking and finding those people because it's not like they're necessarily going to be listed on every dating site as I'm polyamorous looking for my primary partner. They may seem like a monogamous person. I'm going to throw one thing out here, and this may or may not be something you're interested in, but like depending on your interests and the types of relationships that you want to have, like I do think that a lot of people who are like looking for a family situation are poly or like in a group poly kind of situation. And there's definitely a decent percentage of them that aren't douchebags and like the typical unicorn hunters and are going to treat an incoming partner like shit. So if that's something you're open to, that may be something to consider as well. Just yeah. because I, I know a lot of the poly people, you know, I think we answered a question in here earlier from like like a quad who's like has kids and the thing together. Like I think a lot of people who are poly and interested in that are kind of in that situation, but open to other things. So that's just something to consider if that's an option that interests you. But I don't know if I would, you know, discount that off the bat. Yes. If that's something that you'd be open to. Because you mentioned the thing about, you know, people looking to date together. And I, I know there's plenty of, you know, couples who are looking to build triads who are open to having children and things like that with an incoming partner. Not tomorrow, obviously, but are open to that thing. Or not so. even couples, but I mean groups, yeah. right? Like, I mean, honestly, I think in that case, maybe an established group where you, they're already making that family situation work might be a little, I don't know, just a thought. James, 38, Virginia. I'm new to non-monogamy in general. So I'm truly interested in learning what useful functions, hierarchical language, like primary, secondary, etc., serves. Does it help or just hurt relationships? Great question. So I love the fact that this question is after the question we just had. Yeah, right. And that was not intentional. So what I'm going to say is this. Language is useful. Language gives people an idea what they're looking for and what they're needing. So it's sort of one of those double-edged swords, right? Like it's useful, but, you know, at the same time, the problem is we all define these things very differently. You know, like, let's even look at the word hierarchy right now. 
Uh, first off, I use the term primary, right? And for me, my primary group is just the group that gets the majority of my time and energy. But that's really the limit of how far that definition goes. But I mean, you know, we all use definitions differently. Like if you even just look at hierarchy, you know, the definition for that has changed dramatically over the years. Like people used to use hierarchy to mean things like primary and secondary. But right now, kind of the the in vogue definition of hierarchy just has to do with having one relationship that has power over another relationship that it's not a part of. So, you know, these words get really tricky really fast. Like I said, even the word hierarchy that you're using doesn't mean everybody's not using it the same way. And it doesn't mean what it meant a couple years ago in a lot of cases. And this is why when we're working with people, like with our clients, like we make them get way, way more specific than using the terms primary or secondary. Yeah. And actually, you know, so when I talk to folks, you know, my clients or even people just in our Facebook group, I'm like, don't get stuck on a label, right? Because what I'm defining as my nesting partnership might be what someone else defines as their primary relationship. Somebody else might define that as their triad, you know, whatever. And none of those are different, right? They could be exactly the same thing. Or I could be using the same exact word as someone else and it be something that is completely different. So it's one of those things where it's really hard to say that they're they're useful, but on the other hand, they are needed. I think the practical thing is to say that you're going to use some kind of language to describe your relationships, right? Like, you know, like with, with my, my main grouping here, you know, if I'm describing, I'm either going to use primary or I'm going to use nesting partners or something along those lines or people are going to have no idea what I'm talking about. So you're going to use something. You're going to use some kind of label. I think the important thing is to not rely on those to really mean much. And when we're having discussions with particularly our partners, is to actually really dig into the details of what it is that we mean when we say those things and to really define the relationship, you know, in terms that you're specifically negotiating instead of relying on the label to really carry any real meaning in and of itself. Yeah. And also not letting those labels dictate how other relationships are supposed to look. So just because you have a primary doesn't mean your secondary suddenly can be treated like shit. But it's really about using those terms when you have to and when you're actually breaking it down, really getting into what those things mean for you. So to kind of answer that, does it help or hurt relationships? I don't think it helps. I also don't think it hurts. I think what hurts is relying on those labels instead of actually having discussions about what we're looking for out of that relationship and what we're expecting. All right. Our last question is from Katie, 22 in Maryland. Is polyamory considered under the LGBTQ umbrella? Someone in a forum told me it wasn't, and now I'm seeing mixed answers other places. Cassie and Rigel, what do you think? Yeah, they just really want to hop into the hot topic of the last month, right? Like, so guys, you know, those of you who are wondering where this question is coming from, I suspect it's coming from what's been going on with some of the prides recently. There's been a pretty big division among different prides of 
choosing to exclude like polyamorous groups from the pride parades. And you know actually a little bit more about that than yeah, I do. Yeah, there's, there's been some big discussion. Actually, it doesn't seem like there was actually exclusion that was done. It sounded like it more was brought up in topic and places were saying they were allowing polyamory, but like they weren't going to like allow them to have like big things in the parade or they could have things in the parade, but it had to be like a subset of something else. But basically the idea is that polyamory is not the same thing as the LGBTQIA thing. And I mean, the reason why is obvious, right? It's like when you're already kind of on the outside, why be associated with even weirder people? That whole kind of slippery slope, like next thing you know, we'll be marrying 20 people argument that was used against gay marriage in the first place. So, I mean, is it considered under the umbrella? I'd I'd say no. I mean, I think LGBTQ kind of pretty strictly defines what it is by the definition of the acronym. So I'd say no. I mean, polyamory isn't under the umbrella. In terms of like practical, what does it matter though? I guess two things, right? I think the one question is, is it an orientation? Is being polyamorous an orientation or is it a choice? And then I think the other question is, should polyamorous stuff be allowed at like pride parades and things like that? Which one of those do you want to start with? I'm going to start with the second one and I'd like to chime in on that with my own personal thoughts on it. Okay. So my thoughts is, Yes, I think polyamory has a place in pride. And I'm going to go back in history a little bit and tell you exactly why. So this goes into things like if you go to most pride parades, there is usually like the leather daddies, the leather community, the pup boys. And the reason this is, is because the BDSM community was found how? Gay leather bars. That's where it was established. There was a lot of polyamory and open relationships within the leather community. And the thing is, is that basically what we're starting to do is we're starting to say, okay, well, this is, because BDSM does not necessarily mean that you are LGBTQIA. It doesn't. But this is allowed at Pride because it has to do with gay people and lesbians and bisexual people. But this thing over here that has a large population and has also got a lot of roots in the... LGBTQIA community, well, that's not allowed. And I feel like this is one of those areas when we start nitpicking at, well, this group, yes, it, it, it is strongly represented by us, but now you're not allowed here. We start to sort of fragment our community, right? We start breaking off little pieces here and there, and we lose the support of the community as a whole, right? So there's like the BDSM community, which has representation in pride, the leather community, which has representation in pride. And many of those folks are part of the polyamory community. So I feel like this is one of those things where do we really want to start taking away sort of the history of pride, the history of the folks who have been a part of it, simply because we want to start saying, well, this is not necessarily exactly what we're talking about. Do I think polyamory should be taking over pride? Absolutely not. But do I feel like it has a place? Do I feel like it has a reason to be there? Absolutely. So, you know, and I'll hop on the orientation train real quick. And this is funny because we we talked about this a while ago 
when we did the interview with Alan M because we had gotten a question around the same time and short version is a while back, Dan Savage wrote this whole column about how polyamory is not an orientation and Alan had written about that column and so we talked to him. But So this is kind of a hotly debated topic in some ways, but I really think it's, it's I think it's stupid because I, I, I think that it's pretty clear on the face of it. Why do we define, like, what is the argument that we use to say that being LGBTQ is an orientation, right? The conversation that we have with people is that it's biological in nature, right? It's, it's, it's nature, right? People don't choose to be that way. That's just who they are. They're born that way. And, okay, so if that's the metric that you're using for something being an orientation, well, like, the evolutionary roots of why people would be polyamorous is far better established than the evolutionary roots for why there are LGBTQ people in the population. So I really think that if you believe in evolution and if you are using, you know, being born that way as your metric for orientation, it's really kind of ridiculous to say that being LGBTQ is an orientation and being polyamorous is not. But I also feel like it's one of those things that at the end of the day, it really probably doesn't really matter too much whether it is an orientation or not. I think it comes down to... Well, from a political point of view, I think it Yes, does. I was going to say, I think it's important from a political point of view. But regardless, I, I don't think that it necessarily has to be under the umbrella, right? It doesn't have to be under the sexuality umbrella. But I do think it is an orientation. All right, guys, thanks for tuning in again, and we'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks for listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, where we're building relationships outside of the box. Got a question about kink, power exchange, or open relationships that you've been holding on to for years? This is the place to ask it. Submit your question at atouchofflavor.com slash ask. Or leave us a voicemail at 833-ASK-TOF1. 